Okay, I think, I think we're live. Hello, everybody out there on Facebook and YouTube. I believe we're live. Joined here with two of my friends and colleagues, fellow ministers, Mr. Peter Nathan and Mr. Ken Frank, uh, both whom you have met before. Uh, both are, uh, are professors with our online university, Living University, and we're looking forward to the discussion today. I also wanted to mention that today is the first day, if the technology works as we uh, hope, that we are also streaming live to YouTube. So in the past, we've streamed live to Facebook, and uh, that's worked out well. Uh, we're also streaming live today to YouTube, so hopefully that will work out, and a lot of people prefer Facebook, and a lot of other people prefer YouTube, so we want to do our best to serve everybody. Last comment. As I always mention, please do ask questions, make comments on the Facebook page. I know that uh, I've said that uh, many times in the past, and we do appreciate the comments and the feedback that we get. Occasionally, we can even take a question uh, live, and we do plan once in a while to do a, a show, a, a live TW Now show, where we just answer questions that have come in over the prior few weeks. So welcome to the show. Again, Mr. Peter Nathan and Mr. Ken Frank ministers and uh, living university professors. Today's topic is the history and fallacies of the, uh, the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity. So really a pretty deep subject. Uh, I thought that we would jump right into it and begin by asking uh, Mr. Frank and Mr. Nathan talk a little bit about the history of the Trinity, sort of where it came from, uh, maybe how early was it discussed in, in, in Christianity, talk a little bit maybe about the Council of Nicaea and so forth. Uh, maybe we can start with Mr. Frank and then have Mr. Nathan jump in. Jesus and his apostles were devout Jews, and as I was doing research on this, I came across a quote from the Britannica Encyclopedia, and here's what it said, neither the word Trinity nor the explicit doctrine appears in the New Testament nor did Jesus and his followers intend to contradict the Shema in the Hebrew Scriptures. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. All right, so then where did it come from if it didn't come from them? They, they go on in their article. The doctrine developed gradually over several centuries and through many controversies. And when you look into this topic, you will see the many verbal fights that went on for centuries. And lives lost as well. Yes. So uh, this was a cause of bloodshed. Uh, you mentioned the Council of Nicaea, which was called by the Emperor Constantine in uh, 325. It really didn't discuss totally the idea of a trinity. In fact, if you go back through the details of Nicaea, the Holy Spirit is barely mentioned. The uh, main concern at that point in time was the relationship of the father and the son. And it wasn't really until the, or the late of that century that we get the development of the Athanasian Creed in which the current ideas that people hold on the Trinity come into full bloom. Now, to, so give, to, to give our audience sort of a feel for how many years later that was... Uh, was, another 60 was, years, almost 60 years later. After, after Nicaea. After Nicaea. Nicaea Council was 325. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at, what, 381 yes. for... Um, almost 60 years. Right. 50, 56 years. So 56 years, and then, what, three centuries after the establishment of the New Testament That's church. Right. So you have, yeah. you have yes. 300 years. How long has the United States been around as a country? Uh, not quite that long. <laughs> so you have about, about 300 years longer than, than we've been around as a country... 
before you start seeing a formulation yes. regarding this this idea. Now, but new that wasn't I, the new origin either. Ex well, right, right. So, so new new idea, Mr. Nathan. Uh, new Not idea? at all. Uh, we we find the earliest reference to uh, the idea of a trinity in terms of a godhead in the Chaldean oracles which really came out of Mesopotamia, and the ideas then really melded into Greek philosophy and from philosophy into Christianity. So a long journey for the idea of a trinity. So I think we're, we're establishing that uh, the, 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 the germination took place over potentially thousands of years, right. pre-Christian, but... Interestingly, we're going to stay on this, this topic for a, a few more minutes, but interestingly, although the germination was thousands of years and it went back to, you know, Caldonia, um, or the Chaldeans, sorry, um, it was, we were silent. The, the original New Testament church was fairly si was, was silent on the notion of a triune Godhead, was it not? And we'll talk later about some, a scripture or two, but so... What, uh, you know, a, script, a scripture that comes to mind, uh, in my mind, is Jude, in Jude chapter 3, where uh, Jude was encouraging the church to contend, or Jude verse 3, to contend for the faith once delivered, and not to be kind of changing doctrine. So any more, any more uh, comments on how it crept into the church, how, when, and, and, and who the original proponents were? I have a quote from Mary Sinclair, who wrote a book in 1876, Old Truths in a New Light. She said, It is generally, although erroneously supposed, that the doctrine of the Trinity is of Christian origin. Nearly every nation of antiquity is, possessed a similar doctrine. And she quotes St. Jerome, who said, all the, nation, all the ancient nations believed in the Trinity. Mm -hmm. And you can trace this idea Sumeria, Babylonia, India, Greece. Uh, the triangle was the typical symbol of the Trinity going back long before Jesus' time. I think many scholars today accept that there is no basis for the Trinity in the Bible. The idea, I have a particular bishop of the Church of England that I've been acquainted with says, I know it's not in the Bible, but he said, the church fathers established it, and I accept their testimony. So it's the idea of accepting the testimony of those who came after the Bible is a justification for uh, holding to the idea of a trinity. And therein is really the, the quandary, the challenge that I think uh, the Christian world at large has to uh, be confronted with and has to deal with. Do we base our belief on what Jesus Christ said, what the apostles wrote, what's in the, the, the Bible, or do we base our, our beliefs on something that's, you know, extra-biblical? It's been around for thousands of years, but yet for some reason for about, you know, three centuries, it, the, the teaching was not in the, 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 the church, the, the church, the New Testament church. It wasn't until really, as we were talking about earlier, really around 381 that it became more codified, um, and maybe prior to that, the Council of Nicaea sort of sort of hinted at. So uh, I, I have a, a book here that I wanted to read from briefly, <clears throat> uh, just a quote. This is an early Christian doctrines book, and um, interesting, interesting little book. And, and here we have, if I can turn to the page quickly, uh, page 102, uh, it's it's a uh, chapter regarding the the Trinity, the divine triad, 
and it's talking about the, uh, the apologists, and it mentions that on several occasions, uh, Justin coordinates the, the three persons. Uh, then the, the writer mentions that indeed references to the Holy Spirit or the prophetic spirit abound in his writings, and although sometimes he is hazy about the relation of his functions to those of the Logos, uh, the, he, the attempts he made to extract testimony to, to his existence as a third divine being from Plato's writings prove. So that, that's what I wanted to get to. So here we have, you know, in a mainstream evangelistic type Christian book, we have uh, yet another reference to a quote-unquote early church father really going out of his way to try to extract something from Plato, mm-hmm. not from Peter <laughs> or from yeah. John, mm-hmm. from Plato. And then last... I know it's, it's heavy language, sort of academic, but last little quote from this book. Um, the, the, the book even mentions Theophilus parting company with Justin and how there was sort of an argument in the early church about where Theophilus essentially says, look, the Holy Spirit should be equated with, with wisdom, as found in Psalm 33, where God created the, the, the world through the Holy Spirit, but, um, but Justin wanted to, to make it the third person in the triune. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting point to consider because in those first four centuries, you have this desire to reinterpret the Bible in terms of Neoplatonistic philosophy. Now, we may not think that's a big thing, but try then taking the Bible and reading it through, say, Confucian philosophy or Taoist philosophy. Don't you end up with a totally different reading and understanding? And this is the thing. People just don't realize that the Trinity is a result of reading the Scripture through a false, a a non-biblical prism. Right, right. Or lens would be a better word. And the theologians recognize the origin of this doctrine and admit it like Shirley Guthrie professor of theology at Columbia Theological Seminary. She said, the Bible does not teach the doctrine of the Trinity. He. I'm sorry. Surely. All right. He. (laughs) I wonder why that pronoun he was in there. Yes. All right. Neither the word Trinity itself nor such language as one in three, three in one, or one essence, or three persons is biblical language. The language of the doctrine is language of the ancient church taken from classical Greek philosophy. Yes. Now, we've had a couple people on Facebook already thank us for the conversation. I, I do want to say hello to people, uh, Sri Lanka, Ontario, Canada, Texas, all over. Uh, one individual is asking about 1 John 5, uh, verse 7, 1 John 5, verse 7 on our, on our Facebook page, and uh, just sort of asking, you know, well, how do you deal with, with, with 1 John? Maybe we, one of us should, you can probably quote it, but let me turn to 1 John 5, 7 and read it for the sake of those out there listening at work or or um, at home, and maybe you don't have your Bible there handy. <clears throat> You'll probably get to it faster on your iPad than me flipping yeah. through. All right, okay, so here, here's First John 5, 3. Uh, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, is, is, is what, what, how First John 5, 3 reads. Uh, comments on First John 5, 3. Well, clearly it came at a later time, because we find when Erasmus was doing his work on creating a Greek New Testament for translation into the European languages, uh, when he studied the Greek manuscripts available to him, he could not find a manuscript that had this particular verse in it. It was only in the Latin manuscripts. 
And so he, in fact, left it out of his first editions. First two editions. First two editions. Yeah. And then he got a, 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 an upset call from the Vatican mm -hmm. saying, you've got to have this in here. And, of course, the story is rather interesting because he said, well, if you can find me a Greek manuscript that has it in it, I will happily include it in my next edition. And uh, sometime later, someone at Oxford found a Greek manuscript that had the uh, particular section known as the Johannine comma included in it. Now, of course, uh, I think most people recognize and even Erasmus realized himself that this was a setup, that this didn't belong there in the first place. Uh, I brought along uh, my uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary for a, a specific reason. Now, nowadays, most of us use electronic, you know, online uh, resources, but <clears throat> a lot of people will be familiar, even if you're not a, a theologian, with Jameson Fawcett Brown, very uh, well-known uh, mainline Bible commentary, uh, you know, pretty good. It's, it's in almost any Christian bookstore, and here we have... Uh, what Jameson Fawcett Brown says regarding 1 John 5. So you could go to our website, tomorrowsworld.org or lcg.org, and you could, you could search for Trinity and find some information like Mr. Nathan was just discussing. But let's see what uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown says. So, so again, you know, we didn't, we didn't write this. This is, this is actually an old Jameson Fawcett Brown edition, uh, which was probably written well before I was even born. Um, so I didn't write it. Now, let's see here. This would be uh, first edition, uh, 1961, so I wasn't quite around yet. And um, <clears throat> what do they say uh, regarding 1 John 5, 7? Uh, two or three witnesses were required by law to constitute adequate testimony. So the only Greek manuscript in any form which supports the words in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and this is according to Jameson Fawcett Brown, um, is the... Uh, and I won't pronounce it properly, but the Mon Montefortanius of Dublin copied evidently from the modern modern Latin Vulgate, the Ravenus copied from the Complutician Polyglot uh, manuscript at Naples, and so forth and so forth. But anyway, so th then they're getting into uh, re you know revealing that it's 15th century uh, type manuscripts. So the point is here you even have Jameson Fawcett Brown talking about you know 15th century manuscripts. And so, so 1 John 5, 7 uh, is on very weak, weak uh, ground to even be included in, in your Bible at all. I don't know if, you, if there's much more to say about, about Most that, modern but. translations leave it out or make it a marginal note nowadays, but the, uh, the King James, New King James, were based on Textus Receptus, which came from this third edition of Erasmus Greek text, mm -hmm. uh, and that's why it, it appears in that Bible. And many people, of course, uphold that as the authoritative word. But right. Bollinger's Companion Bible was a very popular Bible, late 1800s, early 1900s. And his summary note was, the words are not found in any Greek manuscript before the 16th century, first seen in the margin of some Latin copies. Thence they crept into the text. Right, right. Amazing, amazing. All right, let's, let's move on. So we have a question about what is the nature of God, which um, is sort of a natural, natural progress, progression to this topic, right? Because uh, if we're trying to understand who God is, what God is, 
uh, a lot of people believe God is a trinity, and um, uh, so he's, you know, he's not, and we just barely touched on mm-hmm. a little bit. And, uh, so, so what is the actual nature of God? Well, this is where you really come down to the aspect of the philosophers, because the Greek philosophers especially were concerned about this idea of being and what was the nature of spirit. So they recognized we live in a physical world, but somewhere there was this spirit world. And so they sought to try and define the spirit world. And they did so by the negation of what the physical world was. It's the opposite of the physical world. Uh, And so they came to an understanding which really provides a basis for the whole idea of a trinity uh, based on their uh, uh, understanding of that point in time. Uh, The Bible doesn't really get into defining the spirit world. In fact, what we find is we find one major contradiction between the Bible and the philosophical ideas in that spirit appears in multiple different forms throughout the Bible, whereas in Greek philosophy it appears in as a unit, one, and hence the idea of trying to get three into one becomes the issue of the Trinity. So the idea of nature, we're looking, we're trying to define the nature of spirit in terms of physical understanding. And therein lies the nature of a problem. And therein also a byproduct of that would be the, the doctrine of the immortal soul in man, which is a little off topic. Right. If, if spirit is, is eternal, uh, then you're, you're, you, you need to give man a, an eternal, immortal soul as well. Right. Defining God, when we think about Jesus' teachings, its model prayer, so-called Lord's Prayer, what did Jesus teach us to say? Our Father. All through Scripture, God is defined as a Father. And then the New Testament makes plain to us that we can be sons and daughters of God. Well, this is obviously speaking of a family relationship. That's what it says in Hebrews, that, you know, that, that the captain of our salvation is made perfect, and he's, he's trying to bring many sons to glory. Yeah. So we have a, a Father in heaven. And Ephesians, where it talks about the whole family in heaven and earth is yeah. named in the Father. Yeah. And I want to come back to something you, you mentioned earlier um, about the, uh, the, the, the Greek idea of, of trying to sort of repackage and look at the, the Spirit through a, through a, uh, you know, a, a pre-Christian lens. Uh, what does it say in, in Romans uh, 1, verse 20? I, I, I turned to it a second ago when, when you brought that up. Uh, Romans 1, 20. The, the, um, I'm sorry, 1, verse, well, 19 and 20. <clears throat> um, the, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. So, you know, is God um, knowable? Is he understandable? Um, he's understandable by, his, by the visible things he's made. So when you see, you know, the visible world, you, you don't really see a, 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 tr- a triad situation um, in, in, any, in any way. You see family, and you see husband and wife, and you see, you know, uh, you, you, you don't see a Trinitarian um, model physically. Right. Correct. Well, one of the things I teach is Old Testament. And uh, one of the points I try and help the students understand is the central nature of Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where the Eternal revealed himself to Moses. Moses wanted to see what God looked like. 
And the Eternal said, no, you can't see me and live, but I'll tell you what my character is. And of course, the, the nature that the Father and Jesus Christ want us to understand is what their character is so that we can become like them. And he goes throughout the prophets, and time and time again, they come back to Exodus 34 to try and help people realize this is where your focus is supposed to be. You're supposed to be mm -hmm. developing character like our Father. Mm -hmm. That passage you referred to in Romans 1, I just turned to it, because what may be known of God, so God is knowable, is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, Romans 1, 19 and 20, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, all peoples have this uh, opportunity to know God by the handiwork of the creation. And that sort of leads into what is God doing? If, if we know him, <clears throat> then what is his purpose? Uh, what, so what, what, is God, what is God doing? What, 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 is, uh, <clears throat> what is he doing? He's, he's working out a, a great plan. Um, and what is, that, what is that plan? It's to create something, right? So what is... We've already been there, a family. Right. The whole right. family in heaven and earth. So uh, Jesus Christ is, is the firstborn of the Father, and he talks about us being brothers. Firstborn uh, of many brethren. Firstborn of many brethren. Mm -hmm. Or it's Adelphi, brothers. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it, it's not something detached. It is a family relationship. And, and I, I think, you know, for us to <clears throat> be able to participate in God's plan, and his plan is to create a family, then we have to, to know him. And so I guess my question would be, back to the Trinity topic, if, if people have a, a view of God where he is a, a triune God... Um, is that a knowable God? Is the triune God a knowable God? Well, you, you come back to the Catholic Encyclopedia and various Catholic writings, which talk about the mystery being, uh, the, the Trinity being a mystery, and not just a mystery, but a strict mystery. In other words, you can't understand it, even when it's explained. One of the common expressions that gets bandied about in the theology is deny the Trinity, and you will lose your soul. Try to explain it, and you will lose your mind. Right, right. <laughs> so it is a mystery, and theologians admit it. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the, 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 the Greek words and the, you know, the masculinity or femininity of, of the Holy Spirit. Just maybe touch on that briefly. Uh, have an article here um, uh, from our website, a study topic, Is God Really a Trinity? You can find this on the, the uh, lcg.org website, Is God Really a Trinity? And just uh, to read a little bit about it, and then you, you could make some comments. Uh, many have assumed that the Holy Spirit should be considered as a person of the Godhead because of the pronoun he that's used. And, and I under, we all understand how people can, can be confused. In the English language, we see he, and, and we think, well, it has to be a, a, a male. Um, of course, other languages don't uh, treat it the same. But, uh, so the article continues, however, the Greek language, along with many other languages, routinely assigns gender to nouns. The gender of a noun is fixed and has little or nothing to do with the sex or personhood. For example, the Greek noun for little girl is neuter, while the word for hand is feminine. So I have a hand, but it's, it's 
I'm still a, a male. A uh, little bit more from the article. <clears throat> the pronoun used he, she, or it must always agree with the noun to which it refers. In Greek, the, the noun pneuma, translated as spirit, is neuter, and always takes a neuter pronoun such as it, while parakletos is masculine and always demands a masculine pronoun. Well, parakletos uh, so, is the word comforter used mm -hmm. in John chapter 14 and mm -hmm. 15. And, of course, that's where the whole idea of the personhood of the Trinity comes from. But in Hebrew, the ruach, the spirit, is, in fact, feminine. So in Hebrew, which does not have a neuter case or gender, you have uh, the, the spirit being feminine. In the Greek language, it is neuter. But when you use a different word like comforter, it has to agree with what comforter is, and comforter is masculine. So you can't really define a person based on those criteria. Right. Yeah, especially the Romance languages tend to have the gender mm -hmm. applied to many nouns. When I studied Spanish in college and high school, uh, we had to learn these. And it's just the peculiarity of the language. So this was true in regard to Greek as well. And when it refers to the Holy Spirit as he, it goes back to that Greek word that it, uh, required that masculine pronoun. Should we clarify it? It's not the Holy Spirit that is being used as a he. It is the comforter, comforter. who is seen as being yeah. the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is neutral or right. neuter. Yeah. neuter. Right, right, yeah. right. I think sometimes maybe our, uh, our Spanish and French friends even have an advantage over the English right. speakers because they're just used to, you know, and I'll probably get it wrong, but I think table is feminine in Spanish, if I remember correctly. La but, Mesa. Or, right. So, you know, so they're just used to that, whereas um, in, in English sometimes we, we lose, uh, right. mm -hmm. we forget that. So. Yes. <clears throat> so how can we know God? How can we develop a relationship with Him? We've, we've just touched on a little bit regarding the history of the Trinity when it crept in, and uh, my friends uh, here have, have uh, overviewed some of that. I want to welcome anybody who's joined us late. Uh, it's I'm looking at the clock here. Uh, we have a little few more minutes to go, but we actually, uh, surprisingly, it's it's uh, we're, we're about 25, 26 minutes into the, into the program. But we've got Mr. Peter Nathan and Mr. Ken Frank here, uh, both living university professors. What, what do we want to kind of uh, recap? We're not wrapping up yet, but what do we want to recap about the history, the the, the, the grammar, and then talk a little bit about how we can get to know God. Can, can we just talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit? Because it seems though oftentimes when we get down to talking about the Trinity, we can establish the Father and Jesus Christ and so forth. But the Trinity sort of gets lost on the edge, and the, tr the, the, excuse me, the, the Holy Spirit gets right. lost. But the Holy Spirit is essential for people to have a relationship with their Father. The Holy Spirit is given to those that obey him. Uh, and it is through the power, the, in, the indwelling and the power of the Holy Spirit that we can come to have the mind of God, that we can have a relationship with him. So it is his power that works in us to uh, do his good pleasure within us, to bring us into that family relationship. So the Holy Spirit is very essential to our relationship with the Father. One of the terms used in the New Testament is that the divine nature of God that Christians can have through the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's defined as power, divine nature, 
and it has a number of symbols like wind and water, but it is the mind of God. It's what enables Christians to obey God, to live the Christian life, and it will eventually be the power by which God will transform us in the resurrection. It, it, can, it can totally change us, only through the Holy Spirit living in us can we become God-like, overcome sin, and, and as you said, uh, be, be, be changed now, but also ultimately be changed in, in the resurrection, yeah. which kind of comes back to the family yeah. thing, yeah. you know, right? If, 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 uh, <clears throat> if we understand how God uses the Holy Spirit, our, our sins are uh, forgiven and covered by the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. Right. Uh, we talk about God living in us or Christ living, living in us, but we can just as rightly say the Holy Spirit lives in us, and mm-hmm. that is biblical, that's what Scripture yeah. says. And so <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is, is vitally important. Uh, I think that's a great point, Mr. Nathan, that we need to make sure we, we, we do remind everybody about, that um, uh, the Holy Spirit's vital, but it's, 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 it's something God uses. Right. It's not it's a... It's a power of God right. unto salvation. It's a gift of God that in the book of Acts is described as being granted to God's people upon repentance mm-hmm. and baptism in the laying on of hands. And, and, and then we get into a, a conversation that, you know, frankly, and I apologize to people out there uh, on, on YouTube, in YouTube land and Facebook land who may not like what I'm getting ready to say, but we get into an area of Christianity where sometimes people get a little bit grumpy, which is that it's based on what? Repentance. And that means you have to, you have to change your, your behavior in some way. You have to align your behavior with, with God's laws. And that's where you get into, you know, we shouldn't argue, but that's where you get in arguments with people about, uh, you know, no, 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 it's, it's, it's grace alone. And, and uh, well, what does 1 John uh, 3, uh, 4, and 1 John 5, 3, and so forth say? You know, that if we love God, we'll keep His commandments and so forth, right? That's right. So the Holy Spirit is, is vital, but it's, it's predicated on, on repentance. Yes. Well, of course, grace has been an essential element of every working of God with humanity. Uh, so to say we live by grace alone is only one side of the equation. He calls us, but he expects something from us. There's a lifestyle that Jesus expects of his disciples. He expected it of his 12 and the others who followed him during his ministry. And then he enabled them because he told them when he arose to heaven and ascended, wait in Jerusalem until the promise of my father comes upon you. And then he says, you shall be witnesses of me, to me, to the ends of the earth, beginning in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's what motivates the church to carry the gospel to the world. Maybe one of the uh, points we can make as we come to the end is that you can know God and have a relationship with God, but if we try to wrap our head around this concept of a triune Godhead, number one, even as the Catholics will will tell you, it's, you, you can't, it's, it's not under, able to be understood. More importantly, it's not biblical. And really, I would just add that we're kind of spent, wasting time on something that's, that's det- distracting us from, as both of you pointed out, the real lesson in Christianity, which is you know, behaving, understanding God's desire and will and law and behaving more like Him and living like Him, not trying to understand some sort of metaphysical pre-Platonic uh, you know, ancient mystical type construct about some triune uh, Godhead. You're, you're missing the yeah. point. If we want to know God, as I read earlier in Romans, we know God through the creation. Sometimes theologians call this the two books. 
the book of uh, creation. The other is the revealed word of God. So to all of our viewers, if you want to know God, read his book, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. God has revealed himself in this book. We just have to study it, work hard at coming to understand what he's teaching us about it, and most importantly, to obey it, because the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey him, as Mr. Nathan mentioned a while back. And then again, coming back to for what purpose, uh, Hebrews what 2.10, 2, um, you know, Christ is made, made perfect through sufferings, but what, what's the goal? To bring many, many sons, sons to glory. To, glory. to right. bring many sons yes. to glory. So, so in not other words, a family. To, build, to, to make a family. We come back to the family and how the, the physical um, really does reveal what God is doing. You see yeah. families in, in the animal, not families, but you know, you see families in, in, in the human, king, human kingdom and animal kingdom, and you don't see this closed, you know, uh, pre-Christian right. weird triangle. So uh, <clears throat> interesting conversation. I want to thank everybody for joining us uh, today. Uh, time really went fast. Um, so thank you. I hope that the YouTube feed worked well. Really want to thank Mr. And I'll give you both a chance to make a comment if you want before we wrap up. But want to really thank Mr. Nathan and Mr. Um, Frank for for joining us. Uh, if you're interested in learning more, uh, go to our website and just just Google on our website. Just just uh, type into the search bar uh, Trinity, Holy Spirit, things like that. Passing uh, final Nature comments. Nature of God. Nature of God. Final comments. Uh, uh, it's a wonderful, liberating subject to look at in terms of understanding God's Word. This is the essence of Christianity, coming to know God and Christ in a divine family of which we can become a part. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, uh, and, and thank you all out there for joining us. I want to thank the technical team for helping run things. I want to remind everybody to please come back Thursdays for TW Now, uh, when we'll look at Bible topics and, and look at uh, news uh, in light of the Bible. So thank you very much, and we'll see you at 3 o'clock next Thursday.